introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Antonio Olivo. Antonio Olivo is an urban affairs reporter with the Chicago Tribune, covering immigration, housing and development, and a weekend editor on the Tribune's Metro Desk. Previously, he was a reporter at Bloomberg News and the Los Angeles Times. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Antonio Olivo. Well, everyone, thanks for, for coming tonight. Uh, I want to introduce uh, uh, the, the panel here. Uh, I'll start with my left, with uh, Xochitl Bada. She's a professor in the uh, Latin American Latino Studies program at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And her uh, focus has been on civic, cultural, and political participation of uh, Chicago-based Mexican migrant hometown associations. Uh, to her left, we have Tamara Jacoby. She's the president and CEO of Immigration Works USA. Uh, this is a national federation of small business owners working to advance immigration reform. Uh, and to her left is uh, Jaime Dominguez, who is a college advisor and lecturer of political science and Latino studies at Northwestern University. He uh, has researched uh, race and ethnicity, immigration, and urban and Latino politics. And finally, uh, we have uh, Carlina Tapia Ruano, who's an immigration attorney in Chicago, been here for a while. Uh, current co-chair of Hispanic National Bar Association Immigra Immigration Reform Task Force, and she is the uh, principal and founder of the law firm Tapia Ruano and Gun PC. So welcome everybody, thanks for, uh, for joining us in this conversation. Um, I'll start by way of introduction. Uh, if you don't know how precarious uh, this conversation in Washington is, I'll point you to 2007 when there was a bipartisan uh, a group of legislators who had come together around the idea of immigration reform, and it was pushed by a Republican president, and there was a lot of optimism that uh, the 11 million or so people who were without uh, legal status would get legalization, and those efforts collapsed under intense lobbying um, from hardline conservative groups mostly who bombarded their legislators, conservatives, and moderates, and essentially the bill never made it to the floor for debate. I'll also point you to a recent New Yorker article where um, you understand how uh, sensitive the conversation is uh, when you have a liberal legislator uh, making a very conscious decision to use the term illegal immigrants so he doesn't uh, upset the Republicans that he's working with too much. And, a uh, Republican aide saying that uh, uh, in efforts to push the visa programs that uh, some Americans just can't cut it in terms of taking the jobs that are out there for, for uh, high-tech visa holders. So I'm going to start this uh, uh, by way of transition. Uh, ask Tamar Jacobu, who, who works in Washington, otherwise known as the Sausage Factory, and she's been uh, at the table in a lot of these discussions. Mar, what does it look like? What does it sound like? Yeah, so I'm kind of here from the trenches. Um, I'm a former journalist, and I went to Washington about 10 years ago and got involved in being part of the inside process to craft immigration reform, working with different lawmakers. I don't work for anyone, but I've managed to kind of insinuate myself with a variety of offices and work with different groups as they craft legislation. And it's easy to be glass half full or glass half empty about that. Up close, it is a little messy. It is what people say. It is sausage making. But, you know, I'm actually pretty 
impressed and hopeful with this Gang of Eight process and the process we're seeing this year. Because after all, you know, just a year ago, if you'd said Democrats and Republicans were going to be in the same room working on comprehensive immigration reform that included legalization for 11 million people, people would have laughed at you. I mean, a year ago, the year that DACA happened, that, the, that the President Obama announced his initiative for young people brought here illegally as kids, if you said Republicans are going to be part of that in a year and they're going to have a bill and it's going to be coming to the Senate floor, people would have just said, you know, what are you smoking? And um, I, obviously there's a lot of things that went into that change, but a lot of us in Washington were worried that even when both parties wanted to do that, they wouldn't know how anymore. I mean, it's been years, it's been more than a decade since the two parties really worked together on any major bill, right? They sort of lost the muscles that they used to have that was for doing bipartisan compromise. And so a lot of us worried, well, even if they say they're going to do it, are they going to be able to, you know, remember how to make deals? And what's been remarkable is that the Gang of Eight, you know, four Republicans and four Democrats, and they're not like centrist Republicans or Democrats, all of them, you know, some of the Democrats are really on the left and some of the Republicans are really on the right, went in that room and they worked and worked and they came out with what I think is a pretty balanced product. You know, it has a kind of humane, practical answer for the 11 million, but it also has pretty tough-minded enforcement on the border and in the workplace, which is what the Republicans need. And, you know, that's not perfect balance. There's some people who say it should be toughened up or different things, but it's, a, it's you know, both sides are unhappy, so that's a good sign, you know, it's a, it's a balance. And they, the other big thing, the other kind of big balance is that the bill respects the, fam, the country's traditional family-oriented approach to immigration, like most of the people who come to America now come because they have relatives here, but it tries to rebalance that by having an approach that's more about who does America actually need? Like what workers do we need and what people should we bring in our interest? And I actually think that balance, when we look back in 10 or 20 years, that's going to be the biggest thing this bill does. As important as the 11 million are, what people are going to say in 20 years is that was the bill that started to move us away from being so family-based to more of a balance. And we're not getting rid of family-based. Family-based is still going to be at least 60%, but it's going to be a little more of a balance. So I say, you know, a lot could fall apart and there's a lot of little things I don't like, but I say for, for Washington, you know, they, they're doing pretty well and, and it's a pretty balanced bill. Right. Now, Carlina, uh, 20 years from now, people will also be passing judgment on, on any legislation that comes out of it, assuming that it does happen. Um, uh, given that there are sides that are unhappy and, and that, that could mean derailment uh, again, for all we know. You were, I mentioned your experience because you were around uh, here uh, in Chicago for, for amnesty in 1986. So I guess one question or the one way that people will, will, will pass judgment on, on what happens this year will be whether or not there is another problem with illegal immigration. How do we prevent that from happening under the current legislation? Um, Will we be revisiting this issue two decades from now? Well, I think that's an important question in the discussion, and I believe that the Gang of Eight, the senators who have come up with the bill being considered, have actually done their homework, and they have, in fact, looked at the lessons to be learned from the legalization program of 1986, which included the Special Agricultural Worker Program. And many individuals believe that one of the fatal flaws of that program, although it did legalize almost three million people, and 
those three million people became productive members of our society, had children, were able to, in fact, become incorporated as part of the fabric, and I don't think that there is a legitimate or credible argument that that was a bad thing regarding those three million people. The real complaints of the legalization program of 86 were its failures in not providing for avoidance of a large group of undocumented people. In other words, the need to have this discussion of how do we legalize undocumented again. And that was a fatal flaw of the 86 legislation because it didn't look to the flow of future immigration, which is what Tamar has been talking about. And when I say the flow of future immigration, I'm not talking about the border. Let's seal the border. Because I think anyone who's done any kind of reading or discussion of how do we protect our country to make sure that individuals enter the country legally, their answer is not going to be, well, let's seal the border or let's militarize the border. That's not the answer. The answer is, how do we create a system that regularizes, to use a term, that allows for legal entry and, of course, subsequent departure, because we live in a very, very mobile world, of large groups of people who want to come to the United States, who want to be productive, and who want to contribute to our society. And this current legislation talks about not only legalization, but how do we re redraft the entire visa program? How do we balance employment with families? How do we look at employment in terms of are we just allowing for unskilled or essential worker, or do we provide for greater admission of skilled worker? And, not, and recognizing this gang of eight, that they're really two bookends of the very same continuum, and that is necessary workers for the benefit of the U.S. economy. So I think that 20 years from now, I do believe we will have, in fact, a legalization program. I'm hopeful we won't have any more negative amendments than we have seen. There's already harmful provisions in the bill, but I'm hoping that those will be minimized. Um, I do believe we'll have a legalization program. I do believe we will have millions of people who will legalize. And I do believe that we're not going to have a repeat of the need for another amnesty if we, in fact, increase the opportunity for legal migration. That is the plain and simple answer which this bill is attempting to address. Okay, so back in 1986, uh, during, during amnesty or the process that followed, uh, uh, you can recall that there were lots of, of lines, uh, people waiting to, to get in, basically, and, and to have their applications reviewed. We're obviously in a different period now. We're more computerized. Um, uh, a year ago, or almost a year ago now, we had DACA. Uh, and if anyone uh, remembers the outpouring uh, at Navy Pier, it uh, was a sight to behold. It's very emotional. Um, do we have the capacity, uh, does the government have the capacity to process, let's say, 11 million uh, people who, who want to get into the system? Are we, are we up to the task? As, well, as not being an employee of the government and speaking on the government's behalf, I would say Yes, resounding yes. Uh, first of all, the director of the Citizenship and Immigration Service, Alejandro Mallorca, is right now publicly announced that he's already working on how do we do this. He's not waiting if we do this, but how do we do this. Number two, I do believe if you look at Deferred Action for Childhood Arrival Program, in less than, what has it been, seven months, I can't count, from August to now, in less than a period of a year, we have successfully, we, the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, or that's how it used to be called, the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service. I just revealed how old I was in that slip-up. <laughs> but in any event, the uh, Department of Homeland Security has successfully approved over 300,000 applications from individuals all over the country. Now, there may be the argument 
and over 500,000 have applied. And remember, this is in less than one year. An announcement made in June, a program that began in August. So this is a very short period of time where individuals who are anxious to become legal individuals in this country, to have status, took advantage of their resources and they applied. Now, I do understand there may be comments made, even by our own panelists, well, not everyone lives in an urban area, not everyone has access to a computer. But it is my opinion at this point in time that individuals who sought their way from a foreign country into the United States and surmounted untold difficulties and challenges are going to be resourceful enough to find how to get to a computer if it means the difference between having legal status and non-legal status. Now, a lesson to be learned from the legalization program is that law was passed in 86, and the program only allowed for six months for the agency, that is, the former immigration service, to implement this. My opinion would be, if you're talking about 11 million people, you're going to have to allow the agency just a little bit more time, otherwise you're setting them up for failure. But by the same token, I think you also have to allow a longer period of application than we had with the legalization program, which only resulted in a decade of litigation. And that is, if you're looking at six, even 12, my opinion as an attorney, even 18 months, all you're doing is promoting failure and fraud. You need to have a reasonable implementation time. You need to have a reasonable application time. And of course, what many of you may say here, if you have a law that's passed with certainty of providing benefits in the future, you have to toll removals, deportation. There is no economic, legal, or practical sense in removing people you know will be able to qualify for a program that is it's just a matter of time before it's implemented. So you have to do a lot of things that were not done with the prior program, which I believe some of our congressional representatives have learned from. Hmm. So one thing that uh, Carlina mentioned uh, about those who are in position to apply, uh, describing them as people who want to be productive and who want to contribute to society. So take you back again to a year ago where we had that outpouring at Navy Pier and you had uh, you know, thousands of people waiting, thousands of young people waiting to, to, uh, to get into the system. What do you think the streets will look like uh, the day after uh, uh, legislation is signed into law or the day that app the application process is open? What, how is that going to change uh, the Chicago region? I believe the communities have been preparing for a very long time for this important moment. Remember that since 1960, sorry, since 1996, when the last punitive immigrant legislation was passed in this country, the communities have been fighting to get a fix in this broken immigration uh, law. So they have been taken citizenship lessons, they have taken English as a second language classes, and the state of Illinois has actually supported these efforts through the um, a New Americans Initiative that the governor of Illinois passed originally, the, the conversations started in the year of 2005, it got implemented around 2007, and it got renewed 
uh, in 2010 so that more and more immigrants that are interested in becoming naturalized citizens of the United States can do so. And the, the government of Illinois has provided them with the means, with the necessary means, so to make sure that they can pass the citizenship test. So as we wait for this long uh, for, for a long time for this immigration reform to happen, the communities have been mobilizing and are prepared and ready to be productive members of society at the first moment that they are announced that they can now qualify to, become, to come out of the shadows. Coming out of the shadows, Jaime, that, that's, that's uh, something that I've heard now in, in my 16 years as, as a reporter. Uh, and, and more to the point, uh, you know, the Latino sleeping giant awaking. Uh, do you think that uh, legalization, what do you think the impact of legalization would have on, on Latino politics, your area of expertise? Are we seeing a, uh, a turning of the page in Chicago where uh, this will be a, um, uh, a city or a region that is, is uh, under the influence of Latino, uh, the Latino political process, mm -hmm. as as it is in other cities, uh, Los Angeles being one of them. No, absolutely, that's a good question. I think um, this is, it provides another opportunity. I think for Latinos to to flex their their social and political muscle, um, uh, and just from a civic engagement uh, standpoint, I think anything that that can move a collective from this kind of transitory status to a more solid footing with the um, expectations that, although it's a long process, that they, uh, this collective will eventually be able to engage fully and exercise their rights as practicing members of a, of, a, of a community. That's always good, whether it's Latino, whether it's Asian American, whether it's whoever it is, it doesn't matter. I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, I, and I also think that, um, you know, given uh, the events that have, have occurred that I think that have really kind of put Latinos on the political map, particularly their performance in this last, not just this last election, but the last four presidential elections. The fact that they've gradually increased their share of, uh, in terms of just the re from their uh, register, the number of registered voters to actually, actually turning out, I think that's a good thing. And I think that can only add more fuel to that. And I, and I think that um, that will actually, hopefully, my expectation is that that will invite others, community organizations, elected officials, party organizations, to take a more, uh, 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 to invest more in this community. Um, because I, obviously, and just from a, dem also from just a, a demography perspective, uh, if we look at just the city of Chicago over, you know, uh, since 1970, I mean, we've basically gone from a predominantly uh, black-white city to what I would call now kind of a, a tripart city, right? Where I, I, I would argue that it's no longer a black and white city. I think it's, it, it's, a, city, it, we're, it's a city where Latinos, I know, I think have created their space, that space is gradually growing, and I think this can add to that potential. But there's always the question of, right, bringing them to the polls and actually getting them to vote, and getting them to vote is an actual, another step. But nevertheless, I think that the, the momentum is there. Uh, it's always a question, I think, also of resources. But in terms of, uh, from an uh, enthusiasm perspective, I think that the opportunity is there um, for a city like Chicago to take advantage of that. Okay. Now, obviously, we're not just talking about Latinos who are affected uh, by, by immigration reform. Uh, this is Chicago. There's a very substantial Chinese community, Polish community, uh, an increasing South Asian community. 
Um, you know, uh, and all of those people uh, potentially would be affected by uh, another issue that, that has presented itself tomorrow as a, as a potential stumbling block uh, in getting legislation passed, and, and that's the issue of healthcare access. Whether or not, A, those who are granted uh, legal status would qualify under the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, and, and be able to uh, get the tax credits that would allow them to, to purchase the insurance, and B, uh, uh, whether they would be required, as, as is the case under some proposals, to uh, not only not have access, but, but get the insurance on their own. What, what can that do to the process? Yeah, so this has been one of the biggest fights already in Washington one of the hardest places for the Democrats and Republicans to come together has been over this issue of costs. And, you know, if you remember 06 and 07, I used to go on airplanes, and the people next to me, you know, when they disagreed with me, they'd say, well, what part of illegal don't you understand? You know, they couldn't kind of wrap their heads around taking people who they said have broken the law and bringing them into the system. I th now, people don't ask me what part of illegal don't you understand. They say, what's it going to cost? Like, the new amnesty, you know, the new stumbling block issue, even, even among voters, I think, is increasingly the cost. I think in the wake of the downturn, everybody's worried about cost of everything and deficit and cost of government. And so people are saying, well, all these people, you know, are they going to carry their weight and what's it going to cost? And so the healthcare debate is a piece of that. And the problem there is that both Democrats and Republicans come in so ideological over Obamacare. You know, people, people, whatever they think about immigration, and that's polarizing and ideological enough an issue, what they think about Obamacare is even more polarizing and ideological. And so sort of putting the two together, it's, it's a big thing. But you know, what I, what I say to people when they talk to me about costs, right, it's a, it is a little bit of a complicated issue because it's true that Poor people, just because of the graduated tax structure we have in America, low, you know, earning people do everybody, white people, green people, brown people, everybody, if you not, don't earn that much, you do actually use more in services than you pay in. That's sort of the system. But when you look at what immigrants contribute to the economy, it doesn't even, it's, it's, it's like not even close. So they've done studies in some states where they compare what's the tax use and the tax payment and the services compared to the economic growth. So the one I, the numbers I have in my head, North Carolina, typical state, in a, in the, in the, in a few years, in a decade, immigrants cost the state $61 million with an M because they did actually use more in services than they paid in taxes. But the growth they made possible in that state, $11 billion with a B. So people are worried about the cost, they ask about the cost, but when you really look at the big picture, beyond taxes and services, but growth made possible by the work they do and the companies they start and the, and the way the ripple effect of their work in the economy, they add a lot to the economy and it's not really an issue. But it's hard to educate the, the public about that, right? right? So are you saying it would be beneficial to fold them into, into we, the The CBO, the, the Congressional Budget Office, just did the score today on what the bill will be and came out huge net benefit for the country because of the growth made possible. Carlina, you, you uh, deal with clients who uh, come to you with, with problems that are uh, not always related to immigration, correct? And one, one potential uh, problem would be somebody who, who can't get or who has somehow um, been cheated by the, uh, the healthcare system. Is there, is there a negative cost um, 
because it, it, from my understanding, at least from, from reading uh, uh, recent articles, is that it seems very likely that uh, that that will be um, you know a bargaining chip in, in this conversation in Congress that that some on the on the Democratic side may want to to give up in exchange for legalization. Is there a downside to to not folding this group into um, into the healthcare law? Is there a long-term cost that people should be thinking about? Um, well, I, I, I appreciate the question. I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer it since I think it involves maybe some studies that I'm not familiar with, but just to answer the question with uh, uh, Tamar Jacoby, um, the, the benefit and cost analysis of the individuals, and I will get to your question, Tony, mm -hmm. but I wanted to say that the article that I read from the Center for American Progress was just published on June 14, and according to their statistics and report, if you balance out the contributions of new immigrant workers versus any benefits they may seek, we're talking about a cumulative increase of $824 billion into the U.S. gross domestic product in the next 10 years. So just to give you some facts to support what uh, Tamar just said. With regard to your question, um, yes, I can imagine this was a very attractive bargaining chip if we say we have two groups of people, one who want to legalize the undocumented and one who doesn't, who use the health care as a cost factor to prevent the um, program from advancing. I'm not sure that I can say that what are specifically the dangers of having a bill that legalizes a large segment of a population and precludes them from health care for any number of years other than to use my own common sense and to say, you know, this group of newly legalized immigrants aren't going to live in a foreign country. They're going to live in my hometown. They're going to live in our communities. And if people in my hometown have health issues, have uh, the need for emergency care, don't have health insurance, and then they have to go to a hospital, receive emergency services, which they can today receive regardless of their status. We don't need any change of law. Again, this is just my humble opinion. But I think we're creating a situation where it's going to cost me, the American taxpayer, more money to have that legalized neighbor living in my community who's not being given access to health care. So again, I'm no expert. I don't have any statistics. Um, and I think it's a very attractive red herring. It's a superficial plus to say, we'll legalize immigrants, but we won't give this some benefit, which will cost us X dollars today, because in the long run, it's going to cost the rest of the population, the health-insured population, it's going to cost them a lot more well, money. To be, but to be fair, people. what they're talking about is not no health care. What they're talking about, they're trying to find a compromise where they wouldn't get subsidies and they wouldn't get tax credits, but potentially they would be able to buy into to the pool. I mean, they're trying to find a compromise. So it's not, I don't think it's as simple as like turning them away from the emergency room or giving them Obamacare. They're trying to find a middle ground. I mean, the Senate bill says no Obamacare for the first 10 years, but I think, I don't think, I don't know that that's, I mean, it's, it's unclear where the outcome is going to be. This is going to be a long battle. Um, but those extremes are part of the conversation as well. It, and it's important to recall that uh, for the experiment that we now have in hand, which is DACA, DACA beneficiaries have not been able to buy into this uh, uh, Obamacare situation. So therefore, it's very very important not to lose uh, the vision that it's, we should not allow uh, the, the new immigration bill not to consider this a lot more seriously because you are creating a, a group of workers who are contributing to the economy and who are paying taxes because once DACA 
beneficiaries acquire a regular job, they will immediately start paying taxes, and many of them already were paying taxes even before, because many undocumented immigrants do pay income taxes and sales taxes and many other various taxes. And it's very important that we make sure as a society that all have access, all those who work and have uh, a work, they need to have access to some sort of health care. It will be terrible to create two systems of workers in which some, by the virtue of their immigration status, will not have access to health care. And those who are either naturalized citizens or who are the native born, those will be the only ones with the privilege of having access to government funded health care. I, I would like to suggest, and again, I hate to keep saying this, I don't know the answer, uh, Tony, but I think uh, maybe a good place for Congress to look at what has been the repercussions, the consequences of the welfare reform legislation that prevents newly minted Americans from being able to have access to social services, not health care, but to public social services where it involves a deemed or a means-tested, again, this is beyond my field, but a means-tested benefit. We have a large segment of new residents, new meaning since 1986, I believe it was, who were, became legal residents and are prevented from being able to access social services like any other permanent resident unless they're able to show that they have been working in the United States for 40 social security quarters or unless they became a U.S. citizen. Now, what happened as a result of that legislation is it really and I think this is an unintended consequences of the Republicans who passed the legislation, is it literally drove hundreds of thousands of new residents to apply for citizenship. And of course, once they became citizens, they were part of our voting population who have now, we have seen, made a significant difference in the elections in the recent 10 years. So I think that was an unintended consequence, but people find a means to be able to qualify for benefits, and I don't know how they will circumvent if we have such a law, but my guess is, again, immigrants are an incredibly resilient, resourceful species. And by the way, I'm an immigrant, so I feel I have license to talk about immigrants <laughs> in that way. I think immigrants are a resilient, resourceful species, regardless of their culture, regardless of their educational level, regardless of their economic background. Why? They traveled from a foreign country into a new country, and if they're undocumented, into a hostile new country, and an overwhelming number of those undocumented immigrants have remained living in this country successfully with a lot of heartache for a decade or more. Mm -hmm. So we are talking about a super species, if you ask me. And I think they're, I know, I'm pro-immigrant, unabashedly so. But the point is, my guess is, you create a wall, and these new immigrants will find a way around it. I okay, would prefer I the wall not be to, built. To Jaime, so uh, to take off on that, sure. um, yes, I think we can all agree that uh, you know, it takes a lot to, to come here and establish yourself. Uh, but there, there are obstacles as well in this process, and one of the obstacles is time. 13 years, 13 years to get to a point where you're actually uh, uh, able to apply for citizenship or qualify for citizenship. And, and Jaime, the, one of the, the concerns out of that, uh, you know, there's also a learning curve, I think. Even as, as well prepared as some organizations are, the actual people, you know, have to be brought up to speed. 
One of the concerns is, is that uh, what we will see, at least for the short term, is a two-tiered society. You can argue that we already have that. But uh, I, I'm just wondering what that might look like here in Chicago, given Chicago's climate. Um, the city itself, I think, is very embracing of, of new immigrants, not so much in, in the, the, outer, uh, the outer lying areas. How do you think that's going to play out? Well, I, I think, again, just going back to, um, you know, again, potential. I mean, my colleagues here have already talked about the potential of immigrants and what they bring. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it, this, it is a long, arduous process. I mean, 13 years is a pretty long time. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think that um, there needs to be a concerted effort. Um, and again, I think what it really boils down to is also the, the extent to which a region, right? Because uh, anytime you talk about immigrant politics, about how does a region respond, right? And then whether it's resilient or is it going to be reactionary. I think Chicago, um, or the state of Illinois in general, has, has a, a, re a venerable reputation in terms of being very uh, progressive in integrating their immigrants. And the various institutions, whether it's state institutions, working with local governments, working with nonprofits, I think there needs to be that collaborative effort. Uh, as, as, and I say that's kind of a training ground for preparing them for citizenship. You know, I think the, the, the notion of citizenship gets throwing around very loosely, and, and, and it's, I think it's, it's a concept that has, it's a multifaceted concept, but I think at the core of citizenship is you have to practice it. You ha and the way that you practice it is by becoming engaged, by learning the process, by going out and learning how, how to actually uh, uh, fill out an application, right? How to talk to your elected official, how to, how, how to get something done, right? In the immediate for long-term gain. And I think that, particularly for immigrants, they may not have that experience. Um, and so, again, even though they may be resilient as individuals and also as a collective, I agree with you 100%, there still needs to be that undergirding of that infrastructure that's going to facilitate that. And I think that Chicago is in a very good position to do that. I mean, um, if we just look back just to our, our former mayor, Mayor Daley, I think he was, you know, from the get-go, from the time he became mayor in 1989, I think he saw the writing on the wall that, right, the future of Chicago really is going to, uh, and historically he always has relied on, on the immigrant and has seen the immigrant as a resource. Um, and so he was very, very proactive in uh, uh, taking very progressive positions on whether it's national or even local uh, Im immigration issues. And I also think that, that uh, our current mayor, Rahm Emanuel, has done the same. For example, people will say, well, it's just a symbolic gesture, but this welcome city ordinance, right, which is, again, something that's symbolic. There's nothing kind of substantive behind that. But nevertheless, I think the fact that uh, by him doing that, that he's portraying the, that Chicago is, a, at least the context is right for you to, if you want to work, if you want to be engaged, that the opportunity is there. It's hard work, but again, it's going to be a concerted effort with a, a series of individuals, groups, and organizations in order to make that right. happen. But, so, but the only thing I'll say about that is that, I mean, these are people that have been living here for a long time, many of them, right? It's not like they just got here and now the integration is going to start. Right, many, they work, they, they, they know their way around, many, they, are, many are, of them are very have well married to Americans, Absolutely. their kids are Americans. <laughs> It's going to take them a lifetime to get to the middle class. That's a whole different issue. Right. But it's not like they just got off the boat and were thinking about how are they going to find their way around Chicago. Right. right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So let, let's talk about those who, who may not be uh, so well integrated. We, we discussed, uh, you know, the 11 million who would be affect by, affected by legalization. But let's talk about the rest now. And tomorrow, now your organization is, is, is very... Uh, um, active in, in pushing for, for uh, the visa programs, expansion of the visa programs. 
Uh, I'd like to talk about the two uh, visas that I find most interesting are the H-1B visas and the proposed W visa. So for H-1Bs, um, one thing that, uh, uh, you know, in my reporting and, and, and essentially just reading on the issue that, that uh, uh, is, is concerning about that is essentially, you know, this is a, a, a group of, of visas that apply to a sector of our economy, our still struggling economy, uh, that is the most promising sector. These are where all the good jobs are. These are this is where all the growth is going to occur, and yet we are proposing to to give those jobs to uh, people who are entering into the country instead of people who are born in the country who may benefit from those jobs. Okay. What's, what's the argument yeah, for yeah. expansion? So every country in the world now competes for smart people. Every country, the, what makes a, an economy grow and be competitive and be strong is the innovation in the companies. And every country in the world is trying to educate more of their people to be scientists and technology people and engineers and medical, that's the term STEM. Every country in the world is trying to do better by educating their people, but every country in the world is also competing for outsiders to bring in and do that. You can't be a competitive knowledge economy now unless you, you know, it used to be countries tried to grab the iron and the coal and the territories. Now they try to grab the smart people. It's not to replace their own people. They do, every country wants to educate their own STEM folks, but, but it's to supplement them. So, you know, in the last 10 years, one quarter of the high-tech companies formed in America were formed by immigrants. Like, they're not a quarter of the, of the high-skill workforce, but they formed a quarter of the companies. And that created jobs for American science, technology, engineering, and medical people, right? When you form a new company, that creates jobs. So it's not about, it's not an either-or. It's very easy to think of it. It's an either-or. It's a both-and. And we want those, those smart foreigners, of course, any company should have to try to hire Americans first, but when you try to hire Americans, you can't find enough, whether it's, whether it's a scientist, PhD, or a farm worker, I would argue that the best thing to do is allow people to hire, to fill in where you have gaps, because that will actually create a well-rounded workforce that will end up creating jobs for Americans. Even a lowly farm worker, if you have enough low farm workers to grow your enterprise, then you can hire an American manager, and it's more work for the Americans who sell the tractors, and it's more work for the Americans who buy the food, you know, groceries, processors. So immigrants, of course, in the economy, employers should have to try to hire Americans first. But the truth is our demographics are changing so that we don't have enough low-skilled people and we don't actually have enough high-skilled people. And it's good for us if we can fill in those gaps because it creates a bigger pie for everyone. But I also would like to add to your point that um, Sometimes we talk about immigration and costs, and, and particularly right now, whether you know, are we going to employ more foreign workers versus not investing in, in the people that are here? I mean, when we talk about immigration, I think um, you know, when you talk about high skilled, highly skilled immigrants, for every highly skilled immigrant, there's also a, a lower skilled immigrant tied to that uh, task. So, for example, you may have the Silicon Valley entrepreneur, right, who's working 100 something plus hours, has a business, started a company but doesn't have the time, right, to attend to their children, doesn't have the time to, to attend to their home. So there may be a nanny, there may be, uh, 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 you know, someone who cuts the grass, um, et cetera. So, so in a lot of ways, they're kind of locked in one on, they're, they're locked in together. So I, I wouldn't necessarily see that as kind of a bifurcation, right? I, I see them as kind of uh, being tied together in many ways. So 
so it's not like it's, it's one or the other. Right. I think they're going, they go right. hand in hand. Right, and, okay, but so... And most so Americans those... are in the middle in terms of education. We have many, mo- many, many more Americans get through high school and are in the middle, and we don't have enough PhDs. And so, you, exactly, you need Absolutely. both the PhD scientists and Absolutely. you need Absolutely. the nannies and the gardeners and the farm workers. Those nannies and those gardeners, et cetera, would uh, uh, also be working in a field that is directly affected by the proposed W visa program, which applies to nannies and gardeners and construction workers and landscape workers, workers at fast food restaurants, so on and so forth. So my question then is, are are we looking at a society where we are increasingly dependent on foreign labor for, for, for vast segments of our economy. It's a pretty small segment, actually. The low-skilled segment is a pretty small segment, but it's important because it allows people to do other things. Again, you know, think of the, the home builder. If he can't find enough drywallers, he can't bid on the next house. But if he does have the drywallers and he can bid, then he can hire a plumber and an electrician and a fancy carpenter, and they're probably Americans. Mm-hmm. So actually, immigrants help grow the pie for everyone. And, you know, the point is, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier about preventing illegal immigration in the future, the most important thing to me is if we want to remain a nation of immigrants, it has to be legit so that the public can get behind it. The public, it's hard enough for the public to wrap their head around, we're going to have a lot of immigrants coming. A lot of illegal immigrants, the public really can't wrap their head around. And so if we want to keep our doors open, we really have to create legal ways for people to come so they don't come illegally and give people that excuse to say, oh, no, no, I don't want any more. So to me, the most important thing is that we fix the system for the future so that the people we need to come and do some of these jobs mm-hmm. can come legally and not give you know, Americans who are going to be afraid of it the excuse, oh, you know, they're illegal, what part of illegal don't you understand? Mm. Tony, and if I could just from a, a, an attorney's perspective add to that, because I represent companies who hire foreign workers and have to apply under the existing program of an H-1B. It is a hugely expensive, and I'm not just talking my fees, it is a hugely expensive, costly, cumbersome, time-consuming process where they have to open their doors and invite the foreign, the Labor Department and the Immigration Service to basically look at our shoulders and see, do you employ, pay, and provide benefits according to all of our laws? It is a very invasive process. And employers are only willing to do that today without increasing the obstacles because they've come to the conclusion that that foreign worker is who they need not to be more American, to make more money because that is the god of businesses. We're not talking about families. We're talking about businesses. And businesses look to see how can I be profitable. And when they've come to that conclusion and hire me and say, okay, I'm willing to wait the weeks or months before they approve this work permission. I'm willing to pay you X amount of fees. I am willing to pay the government every three years for two years over uh, $1,500, $1,500, and that's just the filing fees because this guy is so important to me. That tells me it isn't because they're looking to avoid Americans. It's because they're looking for who will be best for their business. And the day the U.S. stops saying to U.S. employers, most of which are small businesses, no matter what you read, we decide who you hire, not who you think is best for you. In my mind, that's the first day we start becoming just a little less 
an open democracy and a capitalist market, no matter where you stand on that. A capitalist market means you let the employer, and I believe in unions, you let the employer control who he needs in his business to make that empty profitable. We should increase H-1B visa numbers. We're going to. We should minimize what the obstacles are. (laughs) I am not saying it should even playing field. The minute employer has to hire me, that isn't an even playing field between let's hire the American and let's hire this attorney to get this worker. So there are already checks and balances to make sure that that U.S. employer is first looking to an American. Okay, fair enough. I think that one thing that that people are are asking, people who aren't, who don't have a direct stake in in this, uh, are asking. Aside from the you know the resentment that that is definitely out there against demographic change and, and all of that, is essentially, where is all this headed? Where is this headed? What kind of society are we, created, are we creating here? And, and I think one of, one of the areas where that question is, is really uh, resonating is, is with respect to, to the E-Verify program. Uh, E-Verify, for those of you who don't know, is, is a, um, a method by which uh, an increasing number of companies essentially are checking out their perspective uh, new hires, citizens and non-citizens alike, they get uh, they get screened by this software program, and so um, uh, uh, civil rights groups uh, have had a, have had an issue with this, mainly because it, it it raises some questions over over privacy. So I'm going to read something that was in the Washington Post. Uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday. This is a quote from Senator Chris Coons in Delaware, uh, a Democrat, and he's essentially says this, over, over time, this could become a single national searchable database of vital biographic information and photographs of nearly every American. And what he's essentially saying is that uh, just as with, with the social security system and, and, and how that has been used as a form of identity, that, that E-Verify can be expanded into other uses and that this is something that we should be concerned about. So my question to you, uh, Sochi, is, is, is does that cause concerns for you at all, just as a, a person who lives here? Well, it definitely causes concerns because, first of all, we all know that the system has many flaws, and the system is not perfect, and sometimes it creates false positives in which many people have lost their jobs just because a fault, like a, a software that has not been appropriately tested, and this is very unjust. But on the other hand, something that is very concerning to me is that the Department of Labor is very much interested in perfecting the system so that to please those who want to make sure that E-Verify is going to be a more reliable system that can be applied throughout the nation, and yet the Department of Labor is not equally eager to hire more inspectors that can go and verify that the labor standards laws are implemented appropriately. Because let's remember that wage theft among immigrant communities is one of the most important problems that the Department of Labor faces. And they do not have enough inspectors on the ground across the nation to verify that the wage and hour division standards are appropriately applied. So if they are going to improve, as the Department of Labor, the E-Verify system in the long run and will make it as a reliable form, as a compromise for passing an immigration law, they need to equally implement 
more standards so that wage theft does not happen among immigrant communities because those are two very important issues that haven't been solved. So can but, I take you but, where it's heading in a different direction? Can I uh, take this? Very quickly, because yeah. we're, yeah, yeah, we're coming to the end, I, right? Yeah. So we're coming to the end. So, you know, what I would say is that this law is catching up with the reality in America. So, you know, 10% of Mexicans already live and work in America. American companies already depend on Indian software experts and Chinese doctors <laughs> and inventors from all over the world and entrepreneurs. And all over the globe, people are moving to work. And that's actually a good thing for everyone. That's like trade. You know, it increases, it grows the pie everywhere. This law is sort of catching up with that. This law is saying we want to have that. We want to benefit from that integration, that shrinking of the planet. And we want it to be legit and open and legal. And we want to benefit it from as much as possible. And sure, that scares people if you're in a small town where you haven't seen anybody who's different, you know, for a generation or two generations or three generations or four. But the truth is, that's like the way of the modern world. And we can try to shut it out with the law, or we can recognize it and change our system and enter that world. And I think that's what this law is okay. trying to do. Well, that that's thought, where it's headed. That thought and we're is a perfect tracked. segue to to, to open up the conversation to the audience. My name is uh, Randy Kim. I'm with the Korean American Resource and Culture Center as the immigrant rights organizer. Uh, you guys are doing a great job, so thank you so much. Um, so the question is right now, where we're also in Illinois, we're working with um, lobbying politicians. Uh, actually, there's three politicians right now in Illinois that are wild cards. Uh, one is Senator Mark Kirk. Uh, number two is uh, Congressman Peter Roskam and uh, Democrat Congressman Dan Lipinski. Now, um, Mark Kirk is basically an enigma. Um, this year when he came back from the stroke, he was the second GOP to support gay marriage and also to support the ban on uh, assault weapons. But, oh sorry, but the, but the concern is right now is um, Kirk just voted to uh, stop, uh, to vote a no to open discussion on uh, the immigration debate in the Senate. So, what what is really going through Senator Kirk's mind? Because border security is an issue with him, and we're trying to figure out what's going on with him right now. So, can this be accomplished without Mark Kirk? Well, I mean, I, yeah. was, I came to I, Chicago because I thought someone would tell me what's going on in Mark Kirk's mind. <laughs> I've been wondering, yeah. I've been trying tell to figure it out myself. Right? I thought that was the answer I was going to take home. But um, I think Mark Kirk is in the place that a lot of Republicans are. And let me try to channel it briefly because it's sort of useful. Um, they say. Like in 86, we, vote, you know, we did an amnesty in America, and we thought that we were trading that legalization for an end to, immigration, to illegal immigration. We thought we were going to fix it for the, you know, fix the consequences of the past, and what we were going to get in exchange was no more. Not no more immigration, but no more illegal immigration. And that didn't happen, right? Because of some of the things that, that you talked about, because we didn't create a legal way. Also because enforcement, let's be honest, enforcement was not that serious for a long time. And so Republicans are saying, and again, I'm channeling here, like, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And I think that's where Mark Kirk is. He wants to be sure that, this is, that he's going to get enforcement that's meaningful. I agree with you that the real answer for the future is not enforcement, it's creating a legal way for people to get here. You know, it's like my metaphor is if, you, if people are stealing food, you don't lock up the food, you sell the food. You know, let's give people a legal way to come, not, just, not pretend they're not going to ever eat. Um, but, 
but that's where I think Mark Kirk is. He doesn't want to, he wants to be sure that the enforcement is tough enough. I think, I think they're going to see some movement in the Senate toward tougher enforcement triggers. Is that going to be enough for him? I don't know. But that is kind of what he said is his price. He's a really important get, so I would not say, how do we do it without him? I would say, keep working on him. It's really important. He needs to hear from people and, you know, people who he cares about. Hi, my name's Maria Ballandron Casillo. And I wanted to ask what you think uh, the city of Chicago has done in terms of influencing the rest of the country, in terms of the activism that occurred here you know, over the last six years, and in particular the, the role of the second generation and the immigrant um, community, if you could talk a little bit about that. What role has the city of Chicago played in, in the, the broader conversation and particularly the, the, the uh, younger generation uh, here. Chicago's been a very active city uh, uh, with respect to, to mobilizing for immigration reform. Uh, talk a little bit about that, the identity that Chicago has created itself over this issue. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I think, you know, I think Chicago, or the state of Illinois, I think has a very good, done a you know, pretty good job in terms of, uh, of capitalizing on uh, this issue in terms of creating avenues that uh, provide for more uh, ab- Opportunities to to practice civic engagement, um, and, and I, you know I see that as kind of the precursor to citizenship. So I'm not even even getting to that concept yet. But I, again, I, I, again, I think the potential and the opportunity to uh, to see this collectively grow, and and not, and I don't mean it just in terms of like more voters. Yeah, I mean my political science hat's going off there. But just in terms of just the investment in terms of these are people who are going to fill our schools. These are people who are going to buy products. These are people who are going to become entrepreneurs. Anything that, again, that, that, that can provide that type of setting for individuals to, to capitalize, for the city to capitalize and the state on that talent, I think is a good thing. And, and Illinois, compared to a lot of other states across the country, is seen as a model. Just to the extent that you have and need ex- relationships that exist between the state, local government, and the various organizations who are in those communities engaging with these individuals or with this collective on a daily basis. Because they understand exactly what the issues are, what these individuals want, and how that, uh, their understanding can uh, you know, bring them closer to uh, understanding the way in which they can become more, uh, uh, make their communities more vibrant, the ways that they can become uh, more beneficial to their uh, communities. Uh, Etc. So I think again, Illinois has done a, a relatively uh, good job in that regard, and and I think that's going to continue. Well, if, if I could add to that, and I agree with that, I, I would say the city of Chicago, particularly in Illinois, in addition, have actually been leaders with regards to how to conduct themselves with an undocumented population and recognizing the need to have immigration reform. A very good example is in the city of Chicago for years, even in the prior administration, had what was called sanctuary city. And I know that's a dirty word, but what it really means uh, is a city that does not in fact cooperate with the immigration enforcement of the federal government when local authorities, Chicago police, encounter someone in a situation of being a victim or even an offender of a crime, that that police officer is going to perform his duty and keep the city safe, but that officer is not going to see his role as being one of, let's try to see if we can hand this individual over to immigration. This is long before we had secure communities or we had anything of that nature. The city of Chicago recognized that if the police department, the police officers here, are going to be able to perform their job, and what's their job? 
keep our community safe. That's their job. Mm -hmm. They could not be performing removal work for the Immigration Service. So I think we were a leader there. That has now been followed by other cities. And it's very much a part of the understanding of this legislation that you can't have local law enforcement performing federal immigration tasks. Right. The other thing is take a look at our state. Just months ago, we passed the Illinois Dream Act, if you want to call it that, I believe it's called yeah. that, where the state of Illinois and its voters recognized, and particularly our governor, I guess, the human capital that we possess with undocumented young immigrants and the need not to wait for immigration reform, the need to help those individuals become educated today by providing scholarship funds to an undocumented population. So I think Chicago and Illinois are leaders in recognizing how to resolve this dilemma. Hi, my name is Tania Sanchez, and just really quickly, I wanted to ask you, how would you grade the grassroots efforts that have taken place to educate and sway public opinion to ultimately gain the momentum needed to pass this legislation? And second to that, what could be done now in the, in the time leading up to those critical voting timeframes? where we could help, again, educate the, the average American as to why this is critical and important. Well, I believe the communities have been working very hard, the, gra the grassroots communities, not only from Latin American communities, but also the African community, the Asian community, the Hmong, the Vietnamese, all interracial coalitions have worked in Chicago in, in conjunction with larger organizations nationally at the local level to bring the message across the aisle, to try to reach bipartisan agreement, to try to reach uh, both a moderate perspective and also something that in, brings an immigration reform that is more humane. But lots of things need to be done, especially outside of global cities, because it's very easy to sit here this afternoon and congratulate all the wonderful things that have happened in the city of Chicago, not just in the last three decades in terms of in trying to incorporate immigrants, but this is a very long tradition that comes even from the 1930s. Remember that the Bohemian-born mayor Anton Sermark in the 1930s prevented the INS to deport immigrants because they refused to share the relief lists with the INS. Because for the mayor, it was very important to keep the immigrants incorporated. And this is why the Midwest was largely spared from the very large deportations that happened in the 1930s. Compared to Los Angeles, the Midwest didn't have that many immigrants deported because a bohemian-born mayor was trying to defend that. So this is a city that has a very rich history of understanding and integrating immigrants. But lots of things need to be done outside of Chicago metropolitan area, outside of Los Angeles metro area, outside of the cities that tend to be historically more progressive by virtue of their historical contact with difference, with the historical contact with other immigrants in rural areas areas that in the last two decades have not had an opportunity to see immigrants of a different skin color, those are the places in which the civic engagement needs to happen. The grassroots need to work harder in hard-to-reach areas such as rural places in which the message is a lot harder to come across and they are very prone to misinformation and not knowing the real facts that drive the positive image of immigrants. Can I add something on public? I just, oh, just want to...
just on that point, also one thing that I wanted to mention also, you touched on, you talk about Anton Sermerich being a bohemian and Chicago being the city of immigrants. I, I think also in terms of an advantage of Chicago as we go forward, I, one of the advantages of Chicago versus other places like New York, Houston, Los Angeles, you don't have the racialization of the immigrant, right? You don't have the, the downtrodden, the dark-skinned individual, the face, right? That, this debate, this reactionary debate on immigration sees, right? In Chicago, it's always been, whether it's the Bohemians, whether it's been the Polish, whether it's been the Italians, they've always been the central part of sustaining the city economically, socially, culturally. So they've always been embraced. And Mayor Daley, I think, was, was an, one of the many experts as well in terms of going to places where outside of Chicago and, and, and holding forums with surrounding uh, governments in the, in the entire uh, Chicago metro area to see what was happening in those areas like Harvard, Illinois, Waukegan, uh, Kankakee, places you wouldn't really think of when you're in Chicago. But there, there are immigrants out there and there's communities out there. And the fact that he brought all these groups and elected officials and the business community together to discuss what were some of the efforts that were going on that were productive and which ones were not, right? And using the, the city of Chicago as a model, I think it, it, that's an example of, of what can be done and is an example of what other cities can do. But again, I think an advantage that we have here in Illinois is the deracialization of the immigrant. And so I, I think that as a city and as a state, uh, we've done a very good job think, of taking advantage of that, and I think that's other thing, another, other, this is an example of what other places and regions can do as well. So just Mark? to say a word about public opinion, you know, what was really interesting a year ago, if you think back a year ago today, when the president did his executive order allowing the children bought here illegally to, to, to be, apply for citizenship, everyone expected the country to be split apart by it, because everyone remembered 06 and 07 and how split apart the country was. What happened with DACA really was the public kind of shrugged. People, you know, even Republicans said, um, of course it's time for those people brought here illegally as children. I mean, I remember at the time a year ago, there were people that reporters went to Romney rallies and asked people what they thought, and they said, yeah, you know, it's time to put that behind us. People expected an outcry, and there wasn't an outcry. Um, Republicans in Congress said we don't like that the president is doing it by executive order, but Republicans lined up to say, yeah, it's about time to do this. And what I'm suggesting is I think this year, I'm being hopeful, I think this year might be different than 06 and 07. People might be more accepting of not everyone is going to say it's fine, let's have widespread legalization, but I think you're going to see a different reaction than we saw in 06 and 07. Polls, I mean, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs did a poll recently where they showed that the number of people who think this is a really intense issue and they have to worry about it has dropped from about 70 to about 40. I think much more of the public is going to say this time, it's about time we put this behind us. Let's get over this. Let's get this done. I'm not saying there will be no opponents, but I think public opinion has changed, and that's part of what we're seeing. Well, there you go. Optimism. That's good. <laughs> good, good <laughs> end. All right. Not to end on. Thank you everyone so much. We will see you at the reception. Okay. All right. Mm -hmm. All right.